You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. 
And they said to Joshua, Truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 680 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, August 5th, 2023, and that is off to a roaring start. Joshua chapter 2 with two spies, note the number, two spies sent into Jericho. Two spies. Not 12. Can you tell Joshua is reminiscing about when it was him and Caleb and 10 other choice men? I think that's what's going on there. I think that's what's going on. I think he's a little superstitious, if not superstitious, a little stitious. Not sending 12, sending two spies. And these two men being sent in, they are given very short, sharp orders Go view the land, especially Jericho. That's their job. They go to Jericho and word comes back to the king. And there's this amazing story, just absolutely amazing story of a prostitute named Rahab who helps these two spies. It would seem she does not have a lot of love for Jericho, but she does love her family. She cares about her mother and her father, her brothers and her sisters. She wants them to be protected. And she tells about how word has spread news of Israel and more to the point, Israel's God, Yahweh God, who is God of heaven and earth. News has reached them. Their fame has preceded them. And The hearts of the men, in particular, have melted inside of them. So they know what's coming. They understand that this is judgment and that it's just a question of when. It's not a question of what or whether. It's a question of when they are going to meet their demise at the hands of the Israelites at the command of Yahweh, because Yahweh fights for Israel. But actually, there's more to it than that, because Yahweh fights for his namesake. And this is one of the things that God has promised is a major reason why he's doing what he's doing, why he has selected Israel for his people, his possession, why he is giving them this land is because he wants the nations, all of the nations to know of him. And Israel is going to be his instrument for making his own name great, making himself known to a people who, if they have remembered him at all, are in rebellion against him. But then there are others who have not heard of him. They have been brought up to know other gods who are no gods at all, who are idols or are demons. And God is going to get them to know him. 
if they have not known him. And if they have known him and rebelled against him, they are going to know what's up. And the statement of faith by Rahab is absolutely remarkable. It's one of the most astounding, clear-cut, open-shut cases of simple faith that God is who he says he is and that we should want to be on his side because God is always right. We should want to agree with God because he is always right. Coming from, of all people, not just an enemy, but a prostitute, not just a woman of the enemy people, but a prostitute. This is not a woman who is a virtuous, godly woman who's been living this upright life. No, she sells her body. She sells sex, more to the point, to men for money. That's what she does. That's how she makes a living. But actually, that might be part of why there's no love lost for her with regards to the city of Jericho and the surrounding area. She has been used and abused for money, probably for years. This is probably not something that she just recently got into. This is probably something that she has been doing for some time. She has a house. She has a house built into the wall. And that is to say, she's been doing this long enough to have accumulated some wealth. And as a matter of fact, if she's going to take it upon herself to try and protect her brothers, her sisters, her parents, she's probably supporting the family more broadly, more generally. And she's taking it upon herself to protect her family. That's also not likely a recent development. This has probably been who she's been in her family for years. Maybe she was the oldest of the children. And because the family was poor, she was sold into prostitution. And that was not an uncommon thing. That's still not today an uncommon thing when there are hard economic times, difficult times for a country or a people. Unfortunately, tragically, it is very common for poor families to sell their daughters into prostitution. If they can't marry them off, if they can't pay some suitable young man to marry their daughters, or if they can't attract a suitable young man because there are no suitable men, or because they don't have the means, they have nothing to offer in return as far as standing in the community, respect, power, status, property, then what they will do as a last resort to make ends meet is sell their daughters into prostitution. And so here we have Rahab, again, not just an enemy, not just a woman, but you have an enemy woman who is a prostitute, not a sexually moral woman, not an upright woman. And yet, as we will find, as the narrative continues, as the story goes on, she is faithful to her word. She does keep her pledge to not just hide these men, but to keep it a secret that they have gone out a different way. She lies to the king of Jericho and to the men who are searching for these spies on behalf of the king of Jericho. She lies to them. And oh, by the way, that's not bearing false witness against your neighbor. This is not the first time. It's not going to be the last time that there is dishonesty 
in the sense of lying to somebody who's malicious or who is an enemy of God who wants to do a bad thing, lying to them and one, not suffering any negative consequences in God's eyes, but also two, being blessed for it, being rewarded for it. Bearing false witness against your neighbor is to slander them. It's to malign their character. It's to make up false and negative things about them, which is to say also, oh, by the way, so much of what we regard as politics as usual in our day is bearing false witness. It is a violation of the top 10 commandments. You don't bear false witness against your neighbor, not even if he is your political opponent, maybe especially if he's your political opponent, you're going to be tempted to, but you don't. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. But to lie to the men who are pursuing these spies of Israel is apparently no sin. Or if it is a sin, it's a very minor one. And the greater sin would have been handing these two spies over to be, I'm sure, tortured and put to death, made examples of to try and terrify the Israelites. She doesn't do that. She hides them and then she helps them by giving them good advice. All she asks for in return is that when they take the city, because this is a statement of faith, this demonstrates that she believes Yahweh will give them the victory over Jericho. It's not if, it's not whether, it's not what, it is when Yahweh gives Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. All she wants is for them to spare her mother, her father, her brothers, her sisters, her household, herself. That's all she's asking for. And these two spies, what do they say? They say, may the blood of anyone in your household be on our heads if we do not keep this oath that you are making us to swear. We will make sure that you are protected here. This is going to be the sign. This will be the signal that your house is to be left alone. If anybody in your household goes out into the streets, we cannot guarantee their safety. They go out into the streets. If they get cut down, that's on them. And that's on you. You have to faithfully give them the warning and the instruction. And if they don't believe you, well, we can't be held responsible for what's going to happen to them because everybody else in the city is in danger in the battle when God gives us this city for a possession, when he gives Jericho to us. And she's good with that. She's good with that. She agrees to those terms. And she's also going to be relaying that message faithfully to her family because she cares about them. Obviously, she loves them. She wants them to be protected. She wants them to be safe from what's coming, what she sees coming. But this is interesting also if you put it up against some of the business in Egypt with the angel of death and the Passover, the original event that Passover is celebrated to remember. The lamb's blood painted over the doorposts is the sign that this or that household believes in Yahweh. That's a sign and a symbol of faith. And the angel of death has been given instruction by God to look for that sign. And if that sign is over the doorposts, the lamb's blood painted over the doorposts, the angel of death is to pass over and not visit that house. Similarly, not exactly the same, but very similar, very reminiscent. We have scarlet fabric, scarlet threads that are to be tied onto this house so that Israel 
will know this house believes in Yahweh. This house is to be passed over. Really astounding stuff. Really just remarkable, dramatic, and fascinating stuff here. As we go on, another thing we're going to come to appreciate is that this woman, who is not a Jew, she is not a Hebrew, she is not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this woman makes it into the genealogy of not just David, but also Jesus, the Messiah. And that too is fantastic. I think it's something of a premonition or a foreshadowing. It's something of a hint of how the gospel is going to be for the Gentiles as well. At first, it will be for the Jews, but then it will also be for the Gentiles, particularly when there is so much rejection. Not all the Jews who hear the gospel reject it. In fact, the bulk of the early church is Jewish. The disciples, the apostles, Jewish. Jesus is born Jewish. But there is so much rejection. There's so much unbelief. And God opens up the gospel for the nations. And the Great Commission is what? Go and make disciples of all nations. Here we have Rahab, who is something of a foretaste, something of a foreshadowing of that. And her story is amazing. It's an amazing example of simple faith and also no pretense of being this upright, self-righteous person. She has no claim to personal virtue except for what she is doing in this moment in one, recognizing the power and authority of Yahweh God and being on his side and choosing to agree with him. And then two, sheltering these spies, keeping their secret, giving them good advice, good counsel, helping them, aiding and abetting them. And three, providing for protecting her family. And as we'll see also, Note this, she doesn't continue on in being a prostitute after Jericho falls. Not to give too much away, but she does not continue in being a prostitute. In fact, she becomes a wife. And this is one of the major differences between God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, the people who follow after God, who obey God, and the godless, the pagans. The gods of the nations have no such aspirational model to give to women. In fact, they would go the other direction. The gods of the nations would lead wives into becoming prostitutes. And yet, Yahweh God will have prostitutes turn into faithful wives who bear children to their husbands and love their husbands and their children and serve their household and, more to the point, have a protective and honorable household to belong to. Women in God's economy, in a culture that is directed by, ordered by God, women are honored as wives and mothers and sisters and daughters. They're protected. They are put into a committed, loving, protective, provisional relationship. In other cultures, that is not so. In non-Christian cultures, it is very common for women 
to have to prostitute themselves or for them to be abused and maligned and mistreated. But here you have Rahab negotiating a deal. You have her being protective, providing, and you have her being rewarded for her faith. And where else do you get that? Where, where else do you get, outside of God's word, outside of God's economy, where else do you get someone with the quality of Rahab, actually, whose faith is credited to her as righteousness, who is so richly rewarded, not just protected when it comes to the taking of Jericho by Israel, but then rewarded further still with a place of honor in the biblical narrative among God's people. It's really amazing, amazing stuff. Eye-opening, fascinating, fantastic. Switching gears, though, let's talk about some current events items. I've got six stories to bring to your attention that have to do with what is in the news that has caught my attention in the last couple of days. A couple of items. First up, Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom have agreed to a debate reporting by Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire informs us August 2nd. Ron DeSantis, as you doubtless know, is my first choice for the Republican nomination. I hope that he gets it. I think he's done a phenomenal job as governor of the state of Florida. I like him. I like his positions on things. No, I'm not embarrassed to say that. Yes, I can defend why that is. If you disagree with it, if you're offended by that, reach out. Let's hear why. I will be happy to explain my reasons. And I think his track record is excellent. And as excellent as Ron DeSantis's track record is in Florida, Gavin Newsom's in California is corrupt and evil and malicious. He is a bully. He's a liar. He is just an evil person. He's an evil, dishonest, slanderous person. I don't like him one bit. In fact, I dislike, I actively detest and loathe the kinds of things that Gavin Newsom says and does. In fact, as a matter of fact, I'm going to play for you cut one. Before I get into this story about DeSantis and Newsom debating, I'm going to play for you cut one from Michael Scott on The Office to articulate more fully how I feel about Gavin Newsom's job as governor of the state of California. Here it is, cut one. Why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. Yep, yep, yep. Same. That That is how I feel. That is how I feel. That is my position. That is where I stand relative Gavin Newsom. I hate so much of what he chooses to be. <laughs> I don't like him at all. Even just looking at his face, the look on his face is sneering. And I regard him as predatory and a wolf. I think he is a bad, bad man. And we need to have good men who are capable of exhibiting strength and courage to stand up to bad men like Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is a bad man. Ron DeSantis is a good man. 
I believe that. I believe his wife when she says that's who Ron DeSantis is, that he stood by her when she was diagnosed with cancer and when she was going through treatment for cancer. Casey DeSantis is a beautiful, well-spoken, intelligent woman, and Ron DeSantis stood by her and took care of their children, and they have beautiful children, and they're a beautiful family, and when she says who Ron DeSantis is, is hardworking, caring, protective, he's a provider, he's a good example, he looks out for them as a family, she doesn't have to just say it, I can see it, right? I can see it, and I think Ron DeSantis is a good man. But Ryan Saavedra reports on this as follows. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced on Wednesday evening that he has accepted California Governor Gavin Newsom's debate challenge. DeSantis accepted the challenge during an interview on Fox News with host Sean Hannity, who will host the debate. When asked by Hannity what his answer was to Newsom's offer, DeSantis responded, absolutely, I'm game. Let's get it done. Here it is. Cut two. You can listen to this back and forth for yourself. Take a listen. You heard Gavin make the offer. Your answer is? Absolutely. I'm game. Let's get it done. Just tell me when and where. We'll do it. And here's the thing, Sean. I mean, in in one respect, the the debate between California and Florida, you know, has already been had, as you suggest. People have been voting on that. They've been voting on it with their feet. They have fled California in record numbers. Florida has been the number one state for net in-migration. We have the number one ranked economy, number one now in education, crime rate at a 50-year low. But in another sense, this is the debate for the future of our country because you have people like Joe Biden. They would love to see the Californication of the United States. Biden may not even be the nominee. You could have Gavin Newsom. You could have Kamala Harris. And I think if we go down that direction, that's going to accelerate American decline. We can't see America decline anymore. We need to reverse American decline. Well said. Very well said. And yes, I would agree that California on the one hand, Florida on the other hand, are quite the studies in contrast. And also, too, he's right People are voting with their feet. They're leaving California in droves. They're not just moving to Florida, but there are people who are moving to Florida, not just from California. They're moving from all over the country in particular. They're moving from states where COVID policies were lock everything down. I don't care what it does to your job. I don't care what it does to your children. I don't care what it does to your mental health. I don't care what it means as far as sacrifices of not being able to go to weddings or go to funerals. I don't care about any of that. Just lock it all down. A lot of high tax rates and overregulation and control freakery and tyranny and oppression in states and cities run by Democrats for decades, dominated by pure despotic democracy, have seen their people say, enough is enough. We're leaving. We're moving to Florida, especially in particular, not just Florida, but especially Florida. And besides that, The other states that people are moving to, I would say, have drawn a lot of strength from the example of not just Florida generally, but Ron DeSantis in particular. The choice between Florida and California, between someone like Gavin Newsom and someone like Ron DeSantis, is the choice between freedom and tyranny. It's the choice between high tax rates, which don't allow you to ever save up the money to buy things 
that you need for your family. On the one hand, being dependent on the state, which is not dependable, being in dangerous high crime areas where the police are not allowed to actually enforce the laws, where the police have been defunded and they've been castigated and they've been rioted against. On the one hand, where the education system is failing families, they're failing children in droves, trying to convince them to become sexual deviants and not teaching them to read or to write or to do math or to know the history of their country, to know what they would inherit as American citizens, as the children of Western civilization. On the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have Florida saying, let's lower the tax burden. Let's take away burdensome regulation that strangles economic development, the creation and sustenance and expansion of businesses that provide income to the owners of those businesses, yes, but also to those who work for those companies, for those businesses in the economy. It's an easy, easy choice. On the one hand, you have the predation of the radical left, preying on children, exploiting children, harming children, driving children to suicide, self-harm, violence against one another, cruelty, disrespect for authority, disrespect for private property, disrespect for our country and the legacy of America, the legacy of Western civilization. On the other hand, you have the protection of children, the protection of women, the protection of private property, the protection of the rule of law. It's an easy, easy choice. I look forward to that debate. And I don't see Ron DeSantis being a limp-wristed, milk-toast straw man like Republicans, I think, have put forward against Newsom in the past. I don't see his wilting under a barrage of lies and deceitful insinuations and red herrings and character assassinations. I don't see Ron DeSantis folding like so many lawn chairs. I see him being able to stand up to that and punch above his weight class or at his weight class because Florida has done very, very well in recent years. Don't put your hope and your confidence in Ron DeSantis, but do recognize quality when we see it. Ron DeSantis objectively has quality. Gavin Newsom has a certain kind of quality, but it's a bad quality. It is evil. What Gavin Newsom has done in the state of California, what he has facilitated others doing, and not just in California, but for all those states that follow California's lead, it has gone badly for us as a country more generally, but for the citizens of those states, for those states that have followed the example of Ron DeSantis, it has gone well. It has gone much, much better for their citizens and for the country as a whole. We soon will have a choice, and I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, enough of us can overcome the temptation to cynicism and fatalism and cowardice, quite simply. It takes courage to speak the truth. If you have one eye on the exit, if you have one thought always kept in reserve for how you will run for the hills if it gets too hot, you're going to lose. 
but if you are strong and courageous, and if your interest is first and foremost in what God says is true and good and right and praiseworthy and honorable and excellent, how can you lose? I don't think ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, you can lose. I mean, just think, just think with me for a moment about what we just read in Joshua chapter two about Rahab. Think with me for a moment, however you feel about the United States of America right now. If you feel like America has prostituted itself and gone whoring after other gods and been immoral and faithless and disobedient and sinful, and if you think that America is a lost cause, I just want you to think also about how God is in the business of salvaging and redeeming lost causes. We all, but for the grace of God, go there. But even a prostitute, and maybe especially a prostitute, can be cleaned up by God if there's a lack of self-righteousness, but there is an awareness of the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and there is a reliance, throwing ourselves completely at his feet and at his mercy and asking him, what must I do to be saved? God is in the business of hearing those kinds of prayers and forgiving. In Christ, we have great mercy and we should throw ourselves at the feet of God and ask for that great mercy, not just for us, but for our fathers and our mothers and our brothers and our sisters and our households. We should ask for that mercy and we should expect to get it. When we ask, when we seek that with all our heart, we should expect to find it. So I, for one, reject the throw in the towel mentality. I think there's far too much selfishness about it. And there's far too little credit that's given to God for his ability to clean up what we have made a mess of, to clean us up, to take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I think there's too little credit being given to God when we check out and throw in the towel and give up on telling the truth, doing what is right, and expecting that it will go well in the end. Maybe in the short term, it doesn't go so well. Maybe there's hate for us from the ungodly, from the godless. Maybe they hate us for it. But if the innocent are at stake, well, then that's just the cost. That's just the cost we have to pay. If there is God's pleasure at stake and men hate us for it and they say all manner of evil against us for his name's sake, well, then that's just the cost that we pay. And you count that cost? Absolutely. And pay it. Because what you gain, on the other hand, is immeasurably more. And what you stand to lose, if you are deterred by the fear of man, is everything. What you stand to lose is everything. Choose well, please. Speaking of California, word came back to me from my oldest two sons who went to DTC, Discipleship Training Camp, down in Alamosa, Colorado, here in recent weeks. And I'm very glad that they went, and it was a good thing that they went. And I'm very thankful to our friends and pastors, Paul Pavlik, Jim Long, for taking my sons. Our whole family couldn't afford to make it. I mean, quite honestly, that's what it was. It wasn't that we didn't want to. It's not that we don't see the value in it. We just quite simply have to also be able to pay the rent and <laughs> utilities and 
buy groceries, all that good stuff. So we did not all go. My three sons who wanted to work and earn and save their money, they paid their own way. And I'm proud of them for that. And I'm glad that they went. Our children who stayed home, it was a special thing for us to just be with them and to hang out and to play games and talk and have a little bit of a different dynamic for a short time without the three who went to DTC. But one of the things that came back to me from the report of how DTC went was that a certain pastor, I believe from one of the churches in our network that is in California, one of the pastors who gave a workshop presentation or some other such, one of the other pastors in our network of churches, the M28 Alliance, at a certain point in his speaking, referenced Dr. Anthony Fauci as a good man or as a godly man or as an upright man or as a man we should look up to something along those lines. And I don't know if this was spoken off the cuff in a facetious way. I don't know. I asked, that was my first question when I heard about this. It's like, were they being sarcastic? The answer was, I don't think he was being sarcastic. I'm going to play for you a clip from Joe Rogan. And just before I play this, be warned, there is some language in this clip. I warn you now, in case you have children present and they need to leave the room for some of that language, now you know. But here's what Joe Rogan, the most successful, most popular, most listened to podcaster in the world, has to say here recently on his program, a tweet from Davy Jones, August 5th, with regards to Anthony Fauci and the whole business of the COVID vaccines. It's about a minute long. Here it is. Cut three. Take a listen. When those guys flip, that's problematic. Well, I think they're flipping. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think the overwhelming evidence that we've been f***ed with, look, just the lab leak thing, just that alone, when you see the gain-of-function emails that Fauci was sending to those other scientists and that there's, there's some clear collusion to try to distort the narrative, that's scary. That's scary that these are the people that we trust our lives to. And when, you know, if you have a child that got vaccine injured and you worry that your child has myocarditis now yeah. and their lifespan is shortened, they might be dead in 10 years. Yeah. That's f- terrifying, especially when you consider the fact that they tried to mandate it for kids when they knew that this wasn't deadly for kids. And they also knew that it didn't stop transmission. They knew it. That's right. They knew it didn't yeah. stop transmission. It was all lies. Okay. As you may have noticed, there was some editing out thanks to Davy Jones. It's not the B Media at its NTB Media on Twitter for editing out the profanity. You might have still picked up on what it was he was saying. But nevertheless, how could any Christian minister call Dr. Fauci a good, honorable man, a good, godly man, with all of the lying and all of the harm? that his claims that they knew to be false, behind the scenes, they knew these claims they were making were false. How can we call, how can any of us call or tolerate Dr. Fauci being called a good godly man? An example? No, 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 no. No, that's not wise and that's not 
faithful. And actually, what that serves to do when you make a claim like that and it's not true is it serves to, in an indirect way, bear false witness against all who would justly condemn bad behavior and corruption and malfeasance on the part of Dr. Fauci. That is not a strong and courageous stance to take. It is being conformed to the pattern of this world, particularly in a leftist direction. And it's not good. I mean, just think with me for a moment about discipleship. If you're making disciples of all nations, what kind of disciples are you commanded by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to make? What kind of disciples? Quite simply, we're commanded, not given the option, not if you get around to it, not if you have the resources, if you have enough people. No, no, we're commanded that the kind of disciples we are to make of all nations are the kind who are baptized, for one, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the Trinitarian God of the Bible and of Christianity. That's one thing, right? You baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you don't stop there. You also teach these disciples to observe, which is to say, to obey all that Christ commanded us. All that Christ commanded us. Insofar as the gospel presentation should always feature confession of our sins, which is to say we agree with God. Yes, you're right, God. We have sinned. We have sinned. Please forgive us. Please don't count our transgressions against us. To confess and agree with God must mean that you admit that you were wrong. If you would call others to confession and repentance, you have to tell them what God has said they are doing that is not good, is not good. It is evil. It is a sin. It is wicked. They should turn away from it. They should stop doing that thing. But first they have to admit that it's the wrong thing. It was a sin. It was wicked, what they did. If you're not telling people that they have sinned, then you are not calling them to repentance and you are therefore not teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. All you're really doing is you're inviting them in and you are giving them an illusion that they are Christians. And that might pad the numbers and that might fill the pews and that might bring in more tithes and offerings, so to speak. But does it honor God? Is that what God is seeking? Is that what God calls us to? No, indeed. I don't believe for a moment that that's what God calls us to. And if you say, well, but if I tell them that what they've done is a sin, that they should turn away from it, that they should repent, that they should confess and agree with God, they should have one mind and be in total absolute agreement with God. Well, they're not going to listen to that. They're going to hate me for it. Yes, they will, many of them. But if they love you for telling them that they're good godly examples when they have done harm to millions and to billions of people, men, women, and children, they've lied and slandered and destroyed reputations. They've borne false witness against others who came to cross-examine them. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes to cross-examine him. And then apparently the rest of the verse is, unless you destroy their reputation by smearing them and getting all of corporate media and big tech to either censor them or tarnish their reputation forever. Get them the equivalent of defrocked as far as 
scientific and professional credentials that would give them any standing, any ability to make a living, any ability to exercise authority themselves. We must do better than that. And what kind of disciples are we making if we tell young people in particular that Dr. Fauci is a good godly man you should look up to, you should aspire to be like? Whoa, no, 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 unacceptable, unacceptable. I'm calling that out. You might as soon say that Nero was a good godly example to live up to. Why? Because he had authority. Honor the emperor, for instance, for example, if your emperor is Nero, honor the emperor means speak respectfully to him to the extent that you are able to Submit to his authority that is given from God. Do so reverentially towards God, not reverentially towards him, but give reverence to God and have a good testimony by submitting when and where you can. But we know it's not a question mark. It's not just something you have to imagine. We know from church history that Christians were thrown to lions. They were sawn in two. They were boiled alive. They were flayed. They were drawn and quartered, they were beheaded, they were crucified, they were burned at the stake for saying Jesus is Lord, when to say Caesar is Lord would be to participate in the worship of the emperor as God. We could stand to take some lessons from Christians in centuries past who understood that, who knew that, who reminded one another of the need for that. We must dust off our church history here in the U.S. because we do, as Aaron Wren says, we do live in negative world. After all, to be a Christian, to call others to repentance is called hateful. It is called hate speech. We are silenced. We are suppressed. We are maligned. We are hated on. We are threatened. We are litigated against, pilloried in the public square, in some cases arrested, taken to jail, without having violated any laws, because what we might say next, not even what we have said, what we might say next would tell the other person that they are living in sin and they need Jesus. They need to put their trust in Jesus, but they need to obey Jesus because he's their Lord and would be their savior if they will trust and obey. For our next story, picking up on this larger theme Tom Ozemek over at the Epoch Times has a report from August 3rd, or I should say it was updated August 3rd. It was published August 2nd. Jack Smith admits making false claim to court in Trump case. I'll read from the report at the Epoch Times for you. Special counsel Jack Smith's team made a startling admission in its case against former President Donald Trump, acknowledging in a new court filing that it failed to turn over all evidence to Mr. Trump's legal team as required by law and falsely claimed that it had, Mr. Smith's team said in a July 31st court filing, and the PDF is attached in a link, by the way, in its classified documents case against the former president that it had incorrectly claimed during a July 18 court hearing that it had provided all Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage to Mr. Trump's defense attorneys as required by law. Quote, on July 27. As part of the preparation for the superseding indictment coming later that day and the discovery production for defendant de Oliveri, the government learned that this footage had not been processed and uploaded to the platform established for the defense to view the subpoenaed footage. 
end quote, Mr. Smith's team wrote in the July 31st filing, quote, the government's representation at the July 18 hearing that all surveillance footage the government had obtained pre-indictment had been produced was therefore incorrect, end quote. Under what is called the Brady Rule, prosecutors in a criminal trial have a constitutional duty to disclose all evidence to a defendant's legal team, including information that is favorable to the accused and could reduce a potential sentence. Mr. Smith's team accused Mr. Trump in a new, quote, superseding indictment, end quote, filed on July 27, of conspiring with his staff to delete some security footage so that the grand jury in the case would not see all the evidence. In the superseding indictment, the special counsel charged Mr. Trump with willful retention of national defense information and two charges in connection to claims that he allegedly told a -a Mar-a-Lago worker to delete security tapes to prevent a grand jury from seeing them. Mar-a-Lago staffer Carlos de Oliveira has been named as a third defendant in the superseding indictment, along with Trump aide Walt Nauda and the former commander-in-chief. Mr. Trump took to his social media platform to deny the new charges, claiming that Mr. Smith's new allegation is false and tantamount to election interference ahead of the 2024 contest. Quote, the security tapes being deleted was a made-up lie by deranged Jack Smith. Election interference. End quote. Mr. Trump wrote in all caps in a post on Truth Social on August 1st. Now let's just stop here for a moment, right? Let's stop for just a moment and let's think about what the timing of this is and whether this is at all precedented and for that matter, what you presuppose coming into a story like this. If you presuppose that Trump is a bad man, he's corrupt, he's dishonest, he would do whatever it takes to protect himself from being, what, thrown in prison? After having been president, being thrown in prison, where does this indictment go? Where do these criminal charges ultimately go? Do they see him behind bars? If you presuppose Trump is a bad man, then you will give him not the presumption of innocence until guilt is proven. You will give him the presumption of guilt, actually. And then he has to be the one to prove that he is innocent when that's not supposed to be our legal standard. That is not supposed to be the way that it works. That is the way that it works for the bureaucratic state, quote unquote, the government is the bureaucratic state. It is the establishment politicians of both political parties, Republicans and the Democrats, that anybody who would challenge them on anything, hold them accountable vet them, criticize them, cross-examine them, is not just in possession of the burden of proof to prove their malfeasance, incompetence, corruption, but actually, flipping the script, the burden of proof to prove one's own innocence lies with the defendant if the bureaucratic state targets them. If the corporate media targets Trump for year after year after year after year, trying to make everything he says and does into a scandal? Is it possible for former President Trump to get a fair trial in this country? Is it possible for anybody to be objective, except for God himself, anyone to be objective about former President Donald Trump? If you have liked what Trump has said the past several years, if you have liked what he has done, if you have agreed with his policy decisions, if you have appreciated his candor when he speaks publicly, 
If you have liked all of that, you may presume him innocent. But then here's the little secret. If you presume him to be innocent until proven guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt, that's actually more in keeping with the way our justice system is supposed to work. Now, what it's not supposed to be is when somebody is guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt, they've been shown by the evidence and testimony to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't show partiality towards them, no matter how much you like their policies, their positions, their personality. It's a dangerous thing if we have built up a cult of personality around Donald Trump, and I think many have. It's a dangerous thing if he is always presumed innocent, even if there is evidence of wrongdoing and guilt. But on the other hand, we've got at least three hands here. (laughs) This is deeply concerning that the timing of these indictments, one after another after another, according to the testimony of Biden's administration officials, the attorney general, for instance, for example, by their own admissions publicly, his running for president is part of the reason why they decided to proceed with appointing special prosecutors and charging him. This is very conspicuously, very openly, very obviously an effort to stop him from being able to campaign and run for president, to keep him so much on the ropes and on the defense that he doesn't have time to run for president. And that right there, that is the really dangerous thing about this whole business. Whether Trump is innocent or guilty, that he would be charged because he's running for president, because they absolutely will not tolerate him getting another term as president, that's the dangerous thing. That's far more dangerous than what he did with classified documents. If you have any evidence that he was keeping classified documents because he was going to sell them to our adversaries, he was going to sell them to our enemies, he was going to give access, by all means, let's hear it, let's see it. I want all of it, not just your insinuations, not just your fever dream about putting him to death because everybody who hates his policies, hates what he's been saying, what he's been doing for years, in part because the media has brainwashed them into hating him, I would say, in large part because the media has brainwashed you into hating him. If you hate Trump and you hate what he says and you hate what he does and you hate what he stands for, you should still be very concerned about the precedent set and what it portends for our country moving forward. I mean, just think, what if you started to get traction on some conservative issue that you care deeply about, just one, and this is the acceptable precedent and then the full weight of the federal government, various state-level bureaucracies, if your state government is dominated by the Democrats, the full weight and power and attention of the federal government decided to turn its scrutinizing eye to everything you have said, everything you have done, privately even, private correspondence, emails, private messages, text messages, what you've purchased, what you've read, what you've watched, what you've listened to, who you're friends with. And they decided to go on a fishing expedition and weave narratives one after another after another until you released 
your grip on whatever the conservative issue is that you care about. Would you see this in a different light then? This precedent that's being set, you have to understand, it doesn't stop with Trump. If it's established with Trump, there's nothing that stands between you and me and everybody we know and love, every cause we care about. There's nothing that stands between everything we hold dear, if we are Christians and conservatives, and the same kind of treatment. The only thing that will correct it, if this is not successfully defeated in the courts, the only thing that will correct it will be at some future date, either the return of Christ, which I would be good with. I think that that sounds like the best option, honestly, even so, come Lord Jesus. Or if the world stands, civil war. That is my prediction. That's not a threat. That's not because I want that to be the case. That is what we're looking at here. We're looking at the makings of a civil war over this. And just think with me for a moment. Suppose Jack Smith and the Democrats and Joe Biden's administration and Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, if they're successful here in prosecuting Trump, if they convince us all that he is actually guilty of serious crimes, if, let's say, as the fever dream pundits in the corporate media like to speculate and suggest and even sometimes claim outright If Trump is guilty of having passed classified documents to foreign adversaries, if they make that case and they try him and they convict him, what do they do then? What what do they do then? What will the next thing be? Will they throw him in prison for the rest of his life? Will they execute him? I mean, these are questions that really need to be answered. It's not sufficient to say, oh, you know what, that's not the issue. No, no, no. Really, seriously, if he's thrown in prison for the rest of his life, how is this country going to go? The people who hate Trump and hate flyover country America, and they hate red state America, and they hate make America great again, Americans. And on the other hand, all of those people that are hated, who love Trump, who think this is an injustice happening before our very eyes at a large scale. How do you think those people are going to get on? I think they'll go to their separate corners. They'll vote with their feet if they can, if they're not prevented from moving from one state to another. I think they'll vote with their feet. And then at a certain point, when Trump is reckoned with, all of these mechanisms, all of this precedent will be directed at other Republicans whoever the next one and the next one and the next one is that they want to make into a bogeyman. And sooner or later, there will be a last straw. There will be one who serves as something like a Fort Sumter, and then it'll be on. And how destructive will that be? How fiery, how bloody, how damaging? Only God knows. But I don't see the Democrats letting this go, and I don't see the Trump supporters letting this go. Now, if he's guilty, he's guilty, but you need to prove it in a just way. And it needs to not be a corrupt proceeding wherein when he does a thing, you prosecute. When the Biden family does far worse and for a longer period of time, when Mike Pence does the same thing, when the Clintons do the same thing, you do nothing. That is partiality. That is dangerous. 
And that is what's going on right now. When Trump does it, he needs to pay dearly. When the Clintons do it, when the Obamas do it, when the Bidens do it, you just shut up already. Or else we'll come for you too. Ooh, oh yeah. You know what? You're going to at a certain point anyways, so it's probably best that we just draw the line in the sand right now. Consider with me another piece over at the Epoch Times by Janice Heil, H-I-S-L-E. Maybe I'm not saying her name right. My apologies. Heisel, perhaps. Also published August 2nd, updated August 2nd. Trump says latest indictment has awoken the world, generated unprecedented support. This is after, by the way, if you are keeping track, his third criminal indictment. And I quote, Mr. Trump said the indictment, quote, has awoken the world to the corruption scandal and failure that has taken place in the United States for the past three years, end quote. He notes the charges were filed against a former highly successful president and, quote, the leading candidate, end quote, for the 2024 election. Quote, America is a nation in decline, he wrote, repeating a refrain from his recent campaign trail speeches, quote, but we will make America great again, greater than ever before. I love you all, end quote. Mr. Trump's second federal indictment accuses him of four charges. The indictment alleges that he conspired to disrupt the certification of the 2020 election on January 6th, 2021, which would deprive U.S. citizens of their right to have their votes count. He is scheduled for a court appearance in the nation's capital on August 3rd. The other federal indictment filed in June accuses him of improper handling of classified documents after he left the White House in 2021. Earlier this year, he was indicted in his first set of charges in New York. That case accuses him of manipulating business records to hide a hush money payment to an adult film actress. Both of those cases include dozens of charges. The offenses carry penalties that would put Mr. Trump in prison for the equivalent of several life sentences. Stephen Miller, a longtime advisor of Mr. Trump, pointed out during an August 1st Fox News interview, quote, they are criminalizing free speech. They are criminalizing resistance of the deep state. They are criminalizing questioning of an election result. Mr. Miller said shortly after the charges were announced, quote, free speech will not survive if this indictment succeeds, end quote. Remember, if you will, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi led two failed impeachment efforts against Trump while he was president. Everything was a scandal. Everything. And here, when they are throwing everything at him and the kitchen sink to boot and just whatever will stick, you have to at a certain point recognize that there's a strong bias against him and that this is not objective. This is not fair. This is not honest. This is corrupt. This is corrupt. I, I would agree with Mr. Trump in that regard. This is corrupt. This is, we'll show you. And it's partiality. And that's the single biggest problem that I have with it is that there are two measures. One for Democrats and establishment Republicans as well. One set of measures, one set of weights when it's Democrats, when they're selling their access and attention and information and advice while in office through proxies, through families, through friends. But then there's a totally different set of weights and measures when anyone would challenge them, cross-examine them, 
criticize them, stand up to them. And that's an abomination. God says that's an abomination, not my opinion. That's God's judgment on this. That's what his word says. Having two sets of weights and measures is an abomination to him. Now, if he is guilty, all I would ask is, as you prosecute him, so also you must prosecute all of the establishment politicians of both principal ruling parties. And you also have to prosecute the people who donate to the major political parties. As long as you're doing this in an above board way, and it's not just you trying to put away for life and destroy your chief political opponent in an important election cycle. As long as it's not that, but then that is what it is, right? That is what it is. And that's why we should be very concerned about this. We should be speaking out against it. We should be opposed to it. And oh, by the way, if you are on big tech and you're opposed to this, you will probably find your reach throttled. If you're in business and you speak out against this, you will probably have people who think they have a free hand to issue reprisals against you because that's exactly what the corporate media, that's exactly what the bureaucratic state, that's exactly what big tech has conditioned them to expect they can do with impunity. When this boils over, it's going to be much, much bigger than Donald Trump. It is already much, much bigger than Donald Trump. Just briefly, let's talk about another bit of reporting at the Epoch Times. One more. Another one from Tom Ozemek, published this one August 4th, updated August 5th. Ex-Capitol Police Chief calls January 6th events cover-up in buried Tucker Carlson interview. And this is really astounding stuff. This is very interesting and very relevant to what I was just saying about this being bigger than Donald Trump. To quote the article, as former President Donald Trump arrived in Washington on Thursday to face an indictment on charges related to the January 6th Capitol riot, parts of a never aired interview with former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund were released in which Mr. Sund called the events of that day a cover-up. As Mr. Trump was being arraigned on his third indictment amid his campaign to beat President Joe Biden in the 2024 election, the National Pulse released exclusively obtained fragments of an interview that former Fox News host Tucker Carlson carried out with Mr. Sund. Quote, everything appears to be a cover-up, end quote. The decorated former police chief said in reference to events around the Capitol riot on January 6th. 2021. Quote, if I was allowed to do my job as the chief, we wouldn't be here. This didn't have to happen, end quote, Mr. Sund said, according to the National Pulse. Much like he did in his book, Courage Under Fire, Mr. Sund partly blamed Ms. Pelosi and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, for failing to provide him and his officers with intelligence that suggested problems on Capitol Hill on January 6th and the potential for the situation to spiral out of control. Quote, like I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when you look at the information and intelligence they had, the military had, it's all watered down. I'm not getting intelligence. I'm denied any support from National Guard in advance. I'm denied National Guard while we're under attack for 71 minutes, end quote. Mr. Carlson replied by saying that it, quote, sounds like they were hiding the intelligence, end quote. Mr. Sun then said, quote, could there possibly be actually 
they kind of wanted something to happen. It's not a far stretch to begin to think that. It's sad when you start putting everything together and thinking about the way this played out. What was their end goal? End quote. There's been much speculation that the events of January 6th were intentionally provoked by federal agents working undercover to make Mr. Trump's supporters look bad and undermine his efforts to challenge the election. According to Mr. Sund, Mr. Carlson was fired from Fox on the day he was planning to air parts of the buried interview. Quote, on the day he was fired, at Tucker Carlson was planning to air parts of our one-hour interview and showcase my book. It was an interview he was excited about and said, it made the hair on my arm stand up, but Fox canned both Tucker and the interview. Coincidence? End quote. See, this right here, this is where I say it is not, first and foremost, at the end of the day, about Donald Trump. Your feelings about Donald Trump can be what they can be. This is about partiality. This is about corruption. This is about tyranny. This is about despotism. This is about dishonesty. This is about bearing false witness against your neighbor. This is about slander. This is much, much bigger. And it affects all of us. This pertains to all of us. This is all of our business. If it can be done to these men, if it can be done to these people, not only can it be done to us, it will be done to us unless we never stand for anything. We never speak up about anything. We just hide. And that's where a lot of people are at. They are hiding. They have been hiding. If you call them out for it, you will get a fiery response. But they know that you're right. You, you, right, you might be wondering, well, what are we supposed to do about it? And that's a fair question. But you can't have one eye on the exit and also be listening when somebody says, well, what we could do is this, 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 and this. Also, if you're not willing to talk about it, if you're not willing to converse about anything public that would be impactful, significant, meaningful for fear, well, then I think you are already admitting that we're there, right? Does it get better if we just leave it to everybody else to be the courageous ones to stand up, to say something, to call it out, to call for repentance? Does it get better on its own, naturally, in due time? Or does it only get more and more expensive to reckon with these things the longer we delay. Believe it or not, I actually do think speaking up is doing something because of what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said about living not by lies. The first step to counteracting the violent repression of the communists in the Soviet Union, according to Solzhenitsyn, before he was deported, the first step was to stop lying about it, to stop running interference for it. Not that you have to say everything to everybody because sometimes maybe you just don't say anything. Maybe you just don't affirm the lie. Maybe that's all you can do sometimes to be blameless and to be wise. But at least do that. At least do that. At least know the truth yourself. What's so astounding about all of this is actually what we're going to talk about in the last news item I have for you to consider this episode. For our last story, I credit Jesse James over at Not The Bee for embedding some tweets from RNC Research in his piece, his post from August 5th. You can watch these if you want to, but these are clips from CNN talking about polling of Americans with regards to the economy. The title of this post is CNN Knows Biden is Done. I'll play for you 
these clips, and then we'll talk about them briefly. First up, here is Cut 4. In this poll, people are also asked who they trust more on the handling of major issues. This really sticks out. Yeah, it does. You know, they ask congressional Republicans or the president of the United States. And we know congressional approval rating tends to be very, very low. Yeah, like in the tank. I mean, like you can say it without even looking at the latest poll. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mass murderers sometimes have greater approval ratings than Congress. And But what we, we see here is that more people actually trust congressional Republicans than President Biden on the most important issues of the day. And this, to me, is a very worrying sign for the president going into the presidential election year because the fact is if he's doing this poorly against congressional Republicans, imagine how he might do against a presidential candidate from the Republican side. Okay, just a quick thought. In case you haven't noticed, CNN skews left. (laughs) They're worried. They're worried about Biden because they are of the left. And just in case, in case you're not clear on that, the way they spin the news, the way they insinuate, the way they cover, it is all to establish the progressive agenda, to cement it, to protect it, to advance it, all of it. That's why they're worried. Their pollster is worried because they want Biden to stay in there or they want a Democrat who will advance their progressive agenda to stay in there. They don't like the Republicans. They don't like conservatives. They don't like Donald Trump. They don't like flyover country America. But you probably knew that. You've probably noticed. Here does the next clip, cut five, more from the same. The timing of the poll is important as well. This is pulled through the month of July. This is also as there's been a slew of good reports on the economy that's been coming in. That must be a real head scratcher for the Biden team. Yeah, I, I think it is a real head scratcher, and it's just something we've seen. Even as the economy's gotten better, Joe Biden's overall approval rating and his approval rating on the economy really hasn't gotten much better. But the thing I'll note, you know, inflation, yes, it's down compared to a year ago, but compared to two years ago, it's still way up. So I think people are taking the longer range view than just the shorter one over the last year. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for recognizing that your reports may say one thing. Our experience is telling us something very, very different. For instance, for example, you want to use two years ago as a measuring stick. Two years ago, and I'm going to give a little bit of inside baseball here, and hopefully I'm not embarrassing anyone. I'm not intending to embarrass anybody. Two years ago, I was making 73% of what I make right now. That might surprise some people because I talk about our family struggling financially, but I've been getting after it. It's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of keeping my head on a swivel. I left a job that I very much, very much liked and enjoyed with people that I enjoyed working with to take the job that I have right now. And that's not supposed to be a complaint or an indictment on people I'm working with right now, but it is to say I really enjoyed who I was working with and what I was doing before, but I had to leave because inflation, because tax rates, because debt accumulated because of the policies of Democrats in particular, targeting my industry, targeting what I do for a living, how I provide for my family, how I put food on the table. Democrats wrecked so much of what I had gained, and that was before Biden took office. That was true before Biden took office. I started in oil and gas back in 2012 when Obama was just starting his second term. 
He did not make it easy on our industry. Now, (laughs) all the same, he couldn't hold back the economic boon in North Dakota in particular. And I'm glad of all places in the country to go, that's where I went. And that's where I moved my family. And we bought a house for the first time ever. We rented a house for the first time ever. We got off of public assistance. We bought a 2012 Ford E350, which we still drive to this day. It's all paid for. He couldn't try hard enough, though, to pinch the gains. And so opportunities that would have been there otherwise were significantly curtailed. And as a matter of fact, I firmly believe that the reason why ConocoPhillips, who I worked for from 2012 to 2016, I firmly believe that the reason why they closed their Sydney office and told everybody who had been operating out of the Sydney office, you either get to move to Watford City an hour away where housing is even more expensive and the amenities are even less and the crime is even more and infrastructure is even less adequate, you either move to Watford City and take a job there or you commute back and forth without getting compensated for it, or you take a severance package. I'm convinced to this day that ConocoPhillips closed their Sydney office ahead of the 2016 election because they were just sure, like all the media was telling everybody, that Hillary Clinton was going to be president after Barack Obama and she was going to continue his policies with feeling, with enthusiasm. And so I took the severance package and I got into automation and I'm glad that I did, but boy, howdy, did I take a step back? I took a major pay cut and we are still carrying debt from 2016 because medical bills, utilities, the kids' homeschooling curriculum, all of it, if I couldn't pay for it out of pocket, I was paying with credit cards and there just wasn't any other way around it. I went from being a rock star and being told again and again up in North Dakota and in Montana, being told again and again, I'm a rock star, I'm going places, being told that again and again to getting crushed with a mountain of debt because between regulation and corporations trying to get ahead of regulation and taxes, my industry was under assault from the Democrats. And then Trump takes office. And 2019, I moved my family to Colorado and I take a job with a midstream company. And just a few short months later, the state locks everything down except for if you're an essential worker, but then oil prices went negative because everybody was being forced worldwide to stay home, not go to work. Oil prices went negative. My overtime was taken away. Again, my drive time to and from facilities over an hour away was being nixed as far as being compensated for it. If I had known that when we moved to this area, I never would have located us in Greeley, but then it's good that we relocated to Greeley. But again, that was Democrats. That was the left that did it. The mask mandates led to friction because I was chairman of the safety committee. And I said, this is dangerous. There's no good sound science supporting the decision to force everybody who comes to these trainings to wear a mask for eight hours a day for two or three days of training. And then I got in trouble because I spoke out against it. I said, this is dangerous. This isn't necessary. We don't need to do this. And then I experienced reprisals. 
And then because our industry was pinched, people who were older and uglier and meaner than me decided to make it their mission to harass me at work. And so that job I did leave because I couldn't take it anymore. I was on call 24-7, 365, including holidays, including birthdays, including anniversaries. All through that period, my compensation went up by $1. I only got one raise the whole time I was there. It was $1 and it was what everybody else got because apparently the person deciding on raises wants to condition us to be socialistic when everybody gets the same raise, regardless of merit or getting after it or output. So I left that job and I took a job with Chevron and it was great, right? It allowed me to recover, get back into a good sleep pattern, actually sleep through the nights. I was recognized once again. I was told by the lead on our systems team here in Greeley, Tom is his name. I was told you can write your ticket here. Pick any job you want on the team, any job you want to learn. You have so much potential. You could learn any of these jobs. You're picking it up so fast. Everybody speaks well of you. Everybody loves you. Everybody likes you. You're easy to work with. You're smart. You're catching things. You're fixing things. I don't care what job you're doing on the team. I just want you on my team. And boy, howdy, did it break my heart to have to tell them, if you can't match this offer I'm getting from this engineering firm, I got to go. I'm sorry. And you know what? Corporate red tape would not allow them to match what I was offered by somebody else, by this engineering firm that I work for now. They weren't allowed to offer me that much of an increase. And so I left. And now here I am making 73% two years ago of what I make right now. And actually, oh, by the way, just this morning, just this morning, I was reviewing pay stubs because yesterday was payday. And they didn't even tell me here, right? They didn't even tell me that they had given me a $5 an hour raise, which I'm very thankful for. I need to reach out to whoever did that and made that decision and say thank you. But they gave me a $5 an hour pay raise on June 20th, and I didn't even notice it, right? They didn't tell me, which is fun. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's cute. Uh, pleasant surprise. But that's the biggest pay raise I have received in my life. And it's the biggest one I've received while staying at a company without having to leave a company to go somewhere else, jumping from one sinking ship to the next, trying to provide for my family. It's the first significant pay raise I've gotten in almost a dozen years of working in oil and gas. I didn't even notice. Why? Because I'm about to go bankrupt. And why am I about to go bankrupt? I predicted it before the 2020 election. I said, if Joe Biden is elected president, I am going to go bankrupt. What he has promised and how tight it's been for this industry, even as it's been, even to this point, I know he will be able to succeed enough. He won't be able to totally succeed. I don't think, I hope not anyway. But he'll be able to succeed enough to create enough uncertainty in the market that investors don't want to invest in oil and gas companies. Oil and gas companies don't want to scare off investors. And so they're going to keep the proportion of contractors they can cut loose very easily and quickly at a pinch, at a moment's notice. They're going to keep the proportion of contractors very high and direct hires very low. And they're not going to give out these big, generous compensation packages like they used to. Why? Because Joe Biden promised to put the American oil and gas 
industry out of business. And so just last weekend, I sold not all of my guns, but I sold most of my guns at a loss because I just needed that cash. I needed that money out to provide for my family. And what I thought I would get from Shields is not what I got. I got for three guns what I was expecting to get for just the one, but I took it. Why did I take it? Because at the end of the day, it's about providing for my family. Two years ago, I wasn't thinking about selling my guns. Three years ago, I wasn't thinking about selling my guns. If you'd asked me three years ago when Donald Trump was president, hey, Garrett, do you think you'll ever sell these guns? I would have told you probably not. I might trade one here or there. I will probably just keep these guns and then as I'm able, as we get our financial situation healthy again, because it's not supposed to be like this, I know that, I'll acquire more guns and eventually I'll hope to have a safe, gun safe with lots of guns because I've got lots of sons. I want my sons to inherit my guns someday, but I'm going to have to get new guns down the road as it is right now. The Biden administration and the corporate news media and big tech, they can say what they want about how strong the economy is. What I hear is when they pick the winners and the losers, they always make sure that the house wins and they're in the house. So they always win and they are so bright and cheerful and beautiful and handsome and well-lighted and made up and well-dressed because the house always wins and they're in the house. And men like me are in the doghouse and we know it and we've known it for some time And you can't lie to us. When I look at the grocery bill and I see it only going up, when I pay nearly $500 for a month's worth of electricity because we have tiered billing in the state of Colorado during the hottest summer months, during the hours when you're going to need the air conditioning the most, with a pregnant wife and eight children and a ninth on the way, we run the air conditioning and we're going to have to run it less. We're going to have to just sweat or get out to the pool more. When I'm paying $500 for electricity, and I know that we're not using that much more electricity than we were years ago, don't tell me that the financial reports, the economy, fundamentals are looking really strong. No, no, no. You're a liar. You're a liar. And insofar as you don't just lie about (laughs) peeing on my leg and then telling me it's raining, but then you lie about my character, my intelligence, my fitness to make decisions for my family and myself, boy, howdy, does that drive a lot of prayers to God for patience, prayers to God for mercy. Deliver us from these mountebanks, these corrupt men, these men who wait in the shadows to shed innocent blood, who lie in the daytime, who use unequal weights and measures, please deliver us, O God, from these people who seek our lives, who oppress us daily. O God, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Just for anyhow, let's play the next cut, cut six. Again, from CNN, Harry Enten, CNN senior data reporter, talking about how Americans feel regarding Biden's handling of the economy. Here it is, cut six. And I'll note the reason why that his approval rating is so low at this point is because it comes down to the economy. If you look at Joe Biden's approval on the economy right now, it stinks. It is well below 40%. You see it there, 
37% approval on the economy, and that's the top issue in our poll. So I don't think it's much of a surprise if you are thinking on the issue that's most important to the American public that your approval rating also stinks. Yeah, that's right. I can't disagree. But there's more to it than that. A strictly utilitarian approach to this would have you approving of Biden if the economy were doing better for you. And that's why I think a lot of these people who do benefit when a Democrat is in office keep on voting for Democrats. But they're voting with their wallet. If their wallet is fat with a Democrat in the White House or in the governor's mansion or Democrats controlling the state legislature, then they keep on voting Democrats. But that's not a conservative move any more than it would be a conservative move to vote for a Republican just because your 401k is going to be in better shape, your bank account is going to be in better shape, your housing values are going to be in better shape. Understand that why it matters how the economy is doing is because it's the government's job, according to God in Romans 13, to reward those who do what is good and to punish those who do what is evil. What evil have I done that I'm being punished with harassment of my industry? What evil have I done trying to provide for my family, trying to build my skill set so that I can provide at a higher level for my wife, my children? I want my wife to get good medical treatment if she has a health issue. I want my children to get a good education and not just to get skills, but to have character built. I want to provide at a high level for them. I want to buy and own a home and have no debts. I want to be able to have safe and dignified transportation to get my family to and fro, where they are supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing. I want them to be able to get from point A to point B in a vehicle that is not embarrassing to them or unreliable or unsafe. It's my job, finite though I am, it's my job to provide and protect as the head of my household. It's my job to be an authority, to set the example, to set the tone, to lead, to direct, to judge, to reward. I look at what Biden has done, what the Biden administration has done, what the Democrats have done, and I see them punishing time and time again those who do what is good, and I see them reward those who time and again do what is evil. And yes, 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 the economy suffers for that. You can boil it all down to that. You don't need some advanced degree in economics to get this. When you do the opposite thing, when you punish those who do what is good and you reward those who do what is evil, you will get more people doing what is evil. You will get fewer people doing what is good unless their expectation is a reward from God. But even there, at a certain point, the good deed we need to do is to hold corrupt politicians and bureaucrats accountable, to throw them out. Because if they, resem if they resemble us, if they represent us, if we make excuses for this, if we affirm this, if we justify it, if we downplay it, minimize it, if we also run interference, then we are complicit. And we deserve to be under judgment. And that's exactly what we're under right now. Here's another clip. Cut seven. Take a listen. I mean, the only one who was noticeably worse was Jimmy Carter. You know, we always said Donald Trump had such a low mm -hmm. approval rating, right? But if you look, what you see is that Donald Trump's approval rating was actually slightly larger 
than uh, Joe Biden's was at this point. Trump was at 43 percent. Biden is at just 41 percent. So he's doing worse than Trump, who he was always saying was doing so poorly. Amazing. Amazing, right? (laughs) CNN owes all of us an apology. And this may be a start. I hope so. I hope this is a sign of good things to come. It would be wonderful if our corporate news media would be honest, consistently, time and again. Just be honest with us. Just stop lying to us, please. That's all. Give us the bad news. Give us the good news. I don't care. I can take bad news. We can't figure out what to do about things if we don't talk about the bad news, but we have to be able to talk about these things and not just get shouted down with character assassination, claims of bad faith, ad hominems, red herrings. Enough, enough, enough with the Edward Bernays propaganda. Do your job. Your job, what you claim you're supposed to be doing, what you are doing, what you claim to be doing is reporting the news. Just do that. Just do that. Don't tell us how you feel about it. Don't tell us what you want. Just tell us the facts and let us go to God to get our feelings straightened out. But this is as the not the be piece by Jesse James comments, astounding. CNN dogging Biden, giving Trump the edge. What? CNN, and I quote, would never have let a sour word on air about their savior, Joe Biden, until very recently. So we have to ask ourselves, do they simply see the writing on the wall or have they gotten their orders from on high that Joe Biden is to be replaced in 2024 with another Dem and they're just carrying out their duties as the propaganda arm of the Democrat Party? Uh, Fair question. That's a fair question. Don't be naive. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents. Know that these people are a brood of vipers. But right now, they happen to be... (sighs) Shooting straight, there's no denying Biden's approval rating is very low. Kamala Harris's is even lower. She is not selling it. The octogenarians who make up the establishment of both Republican and Democrat parties are not selling it. The bureaucratic state, as we get more and more info on what they have behind the scenes told big tech at Facebook, at Twitter, for years. They're not selling it. It's time to come clean. And in closing, I want us to go back to Joshua chapter two and think about all of the feelings. If you've stayed with me this long in this episode, I want you to think about Rahab and as a prostitute, as a woman who has no defense for her livelihood, unless she says, I needed to provide for myself and my family somehow. I was told to do this. This is what I did. And then it just was impossible to get out once I was in that line of work. If Rahab shows us anything, it's that no matter how corrupt, how ripe for judgment a city is, a country is, a nation is, no matter how ripe for judgment, God pays attention to those who trust him. He will cause all things to work to the good for those who love him. I read what Rahab has to say about Yahweh. I read what she has to say in faith, credited to her as righteousness. What she did, not just said what she did, hiding the spies, protecting them, negotiating with them, counseling them. And I say, you know what? Even if the people who have lost all hope, 
that the United States can be a shining city on the hill again and turn away from being Sodom and Gomorrah, even if those people are right, hope is not lost for us. God is good. His character hasn't changed. Everyone else might lie to you. You know who won't lie to you? God. Yahweh God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will not lie to you. There's no reason to lie. He's not a man that he should lie. He won't lie to you. You know who won't leave you high and dry, although he may permit you to be tried, to suffer for a time. You know who won't forget you, who won't forsake you. If your hope is in him, if your trust is in him, God. Do you know who faithfully does reward those who do what is good, who does faithfully execute justice, who does punish those who do what is evil, who does hear the cry of the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, God, this God. Do you know who does execute right judgment on the nations? This God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know who does give wisdom to all generously without finding fault? As James says in the New Testament, this God, only believe and don't doubt. I told you what I told you about my situation, that two years ago, I was making 73%, 73 cents on every dollar compared to what I make right now. I told you what I told you about not even noticing that I got a $5 an hour raise on June 20th of this year. Not so that you feel sorry for me, but so that you understand I don't do this. I don't do this podcasting and speaking thing because I am some wealthy beneficiary of anyone. I say these things because they're true, even if I get a beating for it. I am doing these things because they are good to do, even if some will hate me and deride me and mock me. God sees. God knows. God will reward those who place their hope in him. His word will not return void of power. God is good. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.